Hey there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. It is created by journalists for journalists. And as a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly. Experts with so much knowledge and insight, and yet it rarely makes it past the headlines. So today, I'm bringing on one of those experts to answer all of the burning questions I've ever had about their field. I'm chatting with Sherman Gillums Jr., a retired U.S. Marine and Director of the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination for the Department of Homeland Security's Federal Emergency Management Agency in Washington, D.C., and we're chatting today on none other than Veterans Day. Thank you so much for your service, and thank you so much for your time, Mr. Gillums. I appreciate the opportunity, Catalina. So I have to tell you, when I first heard about this office, um, I didn't know it existed, but immediately I was thinking, yes, this is needed. Of course. How did I not think of this? Tell us a little bit about the mission of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. What is it that you guys do? Well, it is one of the newest offices in the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination's mission is to ensure equity in the provision of aid services and support for disaster survivors who have access and functional needs during all phases of disaster response. In my role as disability coordinator for FEMA, it was a role that was established after Hurricane Katrina, where unfortunately many people who were older or lived with disabling conditions found themselves uh, abandoned or left to fend for themselves when the floodwaters uh, overtook nursing homes and isolated places where many were sheltered in place. The post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act was passed the following year to ensure that people uh, were no longer devalued and abandoned because of lost functions or the need for assistance. And so FEMA will continue to refine strategies and practices that factor into what the agency can do to ensure people are not left behind or treated inequitably simply because an inaccessible environment um, that the state, federal, and tribal governments control has not caught up to their desire to live and recover after a disaster. The office is so new, created after Hurricane Katrina. What happened before Hurricane Katrina's when hurricanes used to hit or when there were other types of natural disasters? How did people with disabilities um, get help then? I think it was a problem that preceded disasters. When you think about um, how society uh, handled or dealt with people with disabilities before that, um, there was a lot of work that needed to be done. That's why there had to be a law passed in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, and even before that, we had the Rehabilitation Act in this passed in the 70s where the, you know, the right for people with disabling conditions to be uh, autonomous and, and self-determined uh, was always challenged by, in many cases, by the environment or social attitudes. And so when disaster struck, you would see a lot of times a, uh, a sort of survival of the fittest mentality that would set in and people who could escape would escape and people who couldn't uh, simply could not. And, uh, and it took the images that we all saw during Hurricane Katrina to surface the issue to a point where people 
uh, it was enough to shock the conscience at that point to have a, to need a law um, to ensure that it would, wouldn't happen again. But it had always happened before, and it just took those images to uh, you know to bring it to light and have people understand how real this issue was. You know, and in doing some research for this podcast, it just dawned on me that of course, I mean, of course, people who have mobility issues who need a wheelchair specifically if their electric wheelchairs might have quite a bit of difficulty uh, evacuating a zone if the power has been cut or if they're down trees or down wires anything like that but then I, I thought about it and it could really impact someone who's blind someone who is hard of hearing so can you tell us about the range of disabilities that we're talking about here and how do each one present different challenges well you noted a few of them um, the most common uh, disabling conditions um, are those that typically involve access to mobility or sensory aids and notice I, I put the emphasis on accessing aids not the condition itself it's people who if given those aids they're independent they're autonomous they go to work I'm in a wheelchair I go to work every day so it's access to the mobility aids or sensory aids and when we talk about sensory aids we're typically talking about someone who communicates using American Sign Language or hearing aids if someone um, uses uh, visual aids, um, there, there are various readers, you know, various things that we take for granted even in everyday life, like Siri and Alexa and all the ways, audiobooks, all the things that help us even when we have sight. Um, all those things help people uh, be independent. And, um, and then you've got your basic um, uh, devices like wheelchairs, canes, walkers. So what happens during a disaster, it's it's the lack of access to these aids that becomes a problem. And the the it could be because the disaster struck a home a certain way, or it could be a person who was able to evacuate, got to an evacuation shelter that wasn't accessible. So where they were independent in everyday life, suddenly they're now less able because of their disenabling environment. Um, so that's, that's an, an aspect of disaster response that's really in the hands of those who run the shelters and disaster recovery centers to provide access to those aids so those people can continue their independence even during um, after disaster. But there are also other types of um, vulnerabilities such as dependence on electric power. You have people who rely on oxygen or dialysis which becomes a concern during blackouts and so we want to make sure that whenever there's a blackout situation like we saw in Florida and Puerto Rico recently, mm -hmm. that we, we know where those people are. And that's my, my office's job to ensure that disaster re uh, responders know where these people are, live. You know, we've got data that, that points that out and prioritizes uh, getting the power back on or when they have to ration power, as we saw in Puerto Rico, then you prioritize those people whose lives depend on it. And then there's another group of people who rely on personal assistance, the aid of another person. This could be a, uh, a parent who is uh, of, uh, in, in their golden years being taken care of by adult children, you know, that reliance on those other people or even service animals to carry out certain functions. We want to make sure that those things are not cut off uh, simply because uh, people have been displaced. Um, and, um, and the more we can ensure that those people maintain some level of autonomy, they then become more self-determined um, as they deal with one of the greatest hardships in their lives. 
tell us a little bit about the disability integration cadre. What is what is it and what does it do? The disability integration cadre is comprised by advisors and technical uh, subject matter experts on uh, typically on matters related to integrating access and functional needs into shelter planning and response. And when I talk about access and functional needs, it can it can mean it can mean a disabling condition, but it doesn't also mean that sometimes a uh, you know a woman who's pregnant or a child or somebody who who needs help isn't regarded as disabled or doesn't meet the criteria by law. So we we take a, a more inclusive approach to how we define the people we support. So when I talk about access and functional needs, I'm talking about those with disabilities, but also those who may need extra help or some aid to get through a, uh, a disaster situation. But what our advisors do is they, they're on the ground typically right after the disaster. In some cases, they're embedded in those communities. So they're, they're with the first responders because they're right there as everything is happening. And, um, and they do the work of uh, beginning with assessing the uh, accessibility of emergency shelters and disaster recovery centers for survivors. They check for the accessibility kits that contain myriad sensory aids and materials, such as um, instructions in Braille, um, you know, magnifiers, hearing, you know, the, the hearing enhancers, so that people can take in the information they need to, um, you know, to follow instructions to keep themselves safe and also to access services. Um, in some cases, are looking at the the structure of the of the shelters. They're looking at the path of travel for people. Who might have wheelchairs or access to laboratories, and and they and they work to find solutions for survivors who um, whose access to aids determine whether they can access resources. Um, so the the cadre's job is essentially to ensure that ignorance of the law and policy does not escalate to a point of noncompliance or violation of civil rights. Um, we want decision makers to be successful during disaster response, and that success is often tied to how aware they are of the various needs of survivors of all walks who may be under their under their uh, care as a manager of a disaster shelter. You just mentioned timing. And as I understand it, a lot of the work that FEMA does requires an emergency declaration from a certain state or region. So FEMA can step in and provide that support. Does that need to happen before you guys come in and assess what kind of impact a certain natural disaster had in an area? Is that too late? Is is it important to be there beforehand? How do you how, how do you traverse that area before and after an event thinking that for some people obviously it's important to evacuate beforehand? Mhm. I'm glad you asked that because even though being there when a disaster strikes and, and they come in many different forms, you know, in California, you've got the earthquakes and wildfires on the east, southern east. You've got the hurricanes in the Midwest. You've got the tornadoes and all the things that are typical in those areas. Floods are another type of disaster. Um, but I think the most important part of our work begins long before the disaster hits. Um, our goal is to stay ready so that we don't have to get ready. And that means engaging communities and stakeholders during what we call steady state or blue skies when people are not facing hardship and tough lessons um, as they're learning about preparation and evacuation and all the things that go into uh, getting to recovery. 
So we constantly work on improving emergency management policy, infusing equity into practices, and using real-world uh, case studies to enhance awareness and judgment on complex matters related to disability integration and coordination during disaster response. So um, so you'll see us out in the community um, engaging schools. I was at Gallaudet University last month with a few of my colleagues engaging students who were, um, you know, this is a school for, for deaf students, but it's also a way to empower people who may become ASL interpreters in the future mm. during disaster response. So we want to create first responders wherever we can get them. Um, and as young as we can get them, as old, doesn't matter. Everybody's a first responder when a disaster strikes. And the best time to talk to them about that is long before, especially in areas that we know are disaster prone. You know, Florida's not getting a break. Uh, Puerto Rico didn't get a break. You get places in California where these yearly wildfires are becoming the norm. Um, so when, when you know that there's an area that's likely to have a disaster at some point, you want that community to be as resilient and ready as possible long before they uh, they have to face the actual event. That's fascinating to me. As a new director of this office, what, what is your vision exactly? What are you hoping to accomplish? This is really easy. Ultimately, I want to drastically shorten the disaster life cycle for persons who have historically suffered the greatest hardship after disaster simply because their independence and autonomy is linked to access to assistive services, prosthetic devices, and medications. In many cases, we're talking about um, altered or alternative functions that are characterized as disabilities, but many people who do not meet the statutory criteria also benefit from a more accessible crisis space is what I call it. I talked about pregnant women, children, older citizens, but I want the cycle from the time a disaster hits to the time of recovery to be as short as possible for people who tend to live with the consequences of a disaster long after others have been able to recover. And this could be in the form of institutionalization that was unnecessary only because they didn't have many options and other reasons that people uh, find themselves years later um, with, with medical issues. You know, people who don't get their psychiatric medications in a shelter um, ultimately find themselves in a worse situation only because they didn't have medication, not because they were sick or not because they were disabled. It was lacking access. So if we can mitigate all those reasons that people live with the consequences much longer, um, I think that's a that's a, a noble mission to undertake for our office. And that's our goal. And we should note here that people with disabilities as well as elderly people are usually more likely to suffer permanent injury or die during a disaster. And so that's why the work that you guys do is so important to just try to help some of these individuals, like you said, be successful and be independent in these situations. And I wonder if technology has impacted this uh field of study for you in a positive or negative way as we become more reliant on technology? Is it harder to help people because if the power goes out, all of a sudden you lose a lot of those uh, tools, like you mentioned Siri or electric wheelchairs, or has it helped? Has AI been a game changer for, for this industry? Well, my answer to that is um, really focused on the gains that people who are 
once regarded as non-functional or unproductive or too hard to assist are proving they can be as independent and capable of self-determination as anyone else, provided the environment is not disenabling. Um, we also increasingly better appreciate the opportunity to include people with lived experience in planning um, and operations, which turns a perceived deficit into a sort of superpower of sorts. Um, I've seen what happens in a disaster shelter when there's not an ASL interpreter who finally shows up and they can suddenly communicate to all these people and empower and you'll see their whole disposition change because this they've been empowered to begin to uh, do what everyone, what all of us should be able to do, which is begin to make decisions, begin to have our questions addressed, all those things. And you only have certain people equipped to do that. So in many ways, it becomes um, an advantage that people who can cross that threshold between the world that's considered able-bodied and those who navigate the world a different way. Um, but many of these people have enhanced senses. Um, I, as a person who navigates in a wheelchair, like many people who shared that experience become master problem solvers. We can see danger around corners a lot sooner. We can anticipate the uh, the barriers and all the things. So if we're involved in the planning, that insight and that extra intuition, um, you see the same in somebody who may be uh, blind where, you know, they, they get enhanced senses in other ways. And somebody who is deaf, um, their, you know, their perception becomes so much more acute in so many other ways. When you combine all that and everybody is part of that planning process and part of the um, the proactive response phase of, of, of emergency management, you have a well-equipped team who can save virtually anybody. And I think that's why it's important to uh, not only have respect for the differences we all bring to the table, but to appreciate some of the ways that people who are perceived to be disabled are enabled in ways that most people aren't. Um, and I think technology, as technology offers more choices, you know, we see people connecting using iPads in shelters where you don't need an individual right there so they can talk through technology. Um, the different types of wheelchairs, you have wheelchairs that can stand you up, do all kinds of things. So I think if, if technology continues to advance, we'll see people um, like me who are first responders. You know, I go into disaster areas and do assessments in a wheelchair, just like anybody else. And it's not even a, a second thought, but I've got a power assisted wheelchair to help me do that. So, um, so yes, technology has definitely become the game changer. And I think it's going to continue. What is, do you think, the biggest challenge facing the field right now? Well, the biggest challenge is, um, I think it's also the biggest opportunity, which is meeting people in their needs where they are. Um, allowing them to help us understand their needs and not put them in a box where we act on assumptions. It's a challenge because people and needs evolve, which is why having a sustained relationship with certain communities uh, as opposed to one-off interactions is critical. So, um, and where my office didn't exist, you had that void where you, you had no bridge between the people you ostensibly want to help and those who know best how they can be helped. And, and those conversations weren't happening until it was too late. So I think the biggest challenge is keeping, the, um, keeping those relationships going when it's, it's easy to let your guard down. You know, if there's no disaster, why talk about it? Well, the best time to talk about it is when there's not one. Right. Uh, because you're thinking about a whole lot of other things. And I think having people 
you know, it's like talking about life insurance. There's like no comfortable time to talk about what will happen when I die, you know, with my kids. But if you don't have that conversation and the worst happens, then it becomes a lot more chaotic. So having people willing to sit down and engage on a topic that's uncomfortable and hard to think about, especially if they're survivors, um, we've got to we've got to make that easier. We, it's it's never going to be fun, but we have to make it more uh, feel more enlightening than than a drudge when you when you have to think about something so heavy as losing everything you have or losing loved ones. So finding ways to do that and and um, and have people stay engaged is is a challenge, but that's that's why we're here. I wonder what can people with disabilities do to prepare and what can their neighbors and family members do to help them prepare as well? They can go to ready.gov and scroll through the various videos and content to get information and ideas on preparation. We have covered literally every type of disability in some way, shape, or form. The videos are accessible. They come in various delivery formats, but somebody has been through what all of us anticipate. Uh, We may have to go through at some point, and there's videos and content that talk about things like what type of things would I have to bring to an emergency shelter if I have to evacuate? I don't have a lot of time to think about it. Or if I do have time, what will go into the kit? Uh, What does my plan look like? Who am I going to call? You know, what medications? How will I get refills? Um, You know, where would I go? You know, where do I, you know, I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know where, well, there are, there are resources that have anticipated all those questions and, and ready.gov is the best place to start that. Um, and, and, and where there may not be, you know, there may be a gap. You can still have conversations with your local community, uh, your county and local and, and state uh, emergency managers and all those people who are responsible for providing that type of information, but, uh, but it's very basic. Just do the basics, begin the conversation, um, be as ready as you can. And, um, and I think you'll, you know, you'll have a better chance at success and recovery just by delving into all those, all that content, uh, before you need it. And that just left me wondering, where do people get their medications refilled when there's an emergency and they've evacuated? We generally tell people to get a um, a supply. So, for example, if I'm living in Florida right now, they're not going to give you like an eight month supply of certain medications and all those things. But if you if you're in a, in a situation where you have time to call your doctor and have CVS or Walgreens or any of the other places fill your your medications and go on and get a supply, um, you put them in a waterproof baggie and then you pack them up in a backpack and you take them with you. However, if you're in a shelter and let's say you didn't have time to do all that. That's why we have our disability integration cadre staff to walk the shelters and you would let somebody know, hey, how can I go about getting, maybe I lost all my pills in the storm or I didn't have time. Um, First question would be, well, do you have your doctor's phone number? And can we find a place that's nearby to fill that? And if you're not in a position to go to the shelter, you know, we can think of ways. It's Again, we're problem solving in that space. It's not going to be a you know, we can't anticipate every question, but we can approach every problem as if it's solvable. So we're going to find a way to get people connected to care. In some cases, you have medical shelters that are um, set up specifically for the purpose of um, of intaking people who may have 
a medical condition like a heart condition or a, a breathing condition um, that can't be uh, easily managed in a in a um, general shelter or an integrated shelter. So you'll have them in spaces where you have, you know, medical personnel who are available to help manage those situations. So um, we've seen a lot of these problems before, so they're not new. Uh, they seem new because, you know, you may have new personnel, but a lot of a lot of the problems that, that you can anticipate have been uh, addressed and managed. Um, so there is a solution out there for just about everything we can encounter. And that's that is the mission of the office, right? To problem solve for these individuals that um, might need just a, an extra little bit of support during um, during an evacuation or during a disaster. They may need support, or they may need us. Meaning the government, meaning the state, meaning the localities, just don't make it harder, right? Some people just don't want to be disenabled. That's a different problem than being in a wheelchair or, or being able to do things independently with the right aids. You take those aids away, that's creating a problem where there was none. And that's what we want to do is we want to we want to de-emphasize the individual as a problem because they're not the problem. The problem is oftentimes the environment. So we want to place an emphasis on what we can control, which is the environment for every individual who has to evacuate and uh, shelter in place. Um, and then recover. And, and I think most of us will have a better shot at that if we're not disenabled by the environment in which we're placed. That's very, very true. Mr. Gillams, thank you so much for all of that insight. And again, happy Veterans Day. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for the opportunity. You can learn a lot more about Mr. Gillams and hundreds of other exceptional experts by visiting rollyapp.com. I'm Catalina Villegas, and you can always connect with me on social media at Catalina Official, O-F-F-C-L, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Until next time. <laughs>